You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon. So now, without further ado, we have uh, Kristen Tracy and Tommy Sadowski. Kristen is a poet and acclaimed author of more than a dozen novels for young readers. Her poems have been published in Poetry, Prairie Schooner, and the Three Penny Review, among other magazines. She lives in L.A. with her husband and son. And Tommy, you have a very long bio, so I'm going to I'm going to cut it down. He's acted in a variety of television, film, and Broadway and off-Broadway shows, including Newsroom, The Law and Order SVU, which is my fave. Uh, John Wick 2, uh, other desert ci- and Other Desert Cities, among many, many others. Um, he's a board member for the, of the charity organization Inara and board member, board member Emer- Emeritus. I don't think I've ever said that word out loud. Emeritus of Refugees International. Um, and they're, tra- they're here to talk about Haphazard, which Claudia Rankine says, the poems in Kristen Tracy's searching, searing debut, Haphazard, are like films you see in your dreams. They feel palpably continuous, while their jump cuts and leaps, jump cuts and leaps catapult you through a wild narrative terrain. These poems live on the bright edge where realism and absurdity meet. Tracy, I'm gonna talk about you like you're not here. Tracy's prodigious talents craft a world that once entered you never wish to return from. Here they both are. This is this is your first event for the book. You're feeling a little bit anxious about it, yeah? You know, I've spent 20 years putting this book like into the world, and so this is like a big moment for me. Can you talk to me about what it was that 20 years? Yes. Why? So I grew up in a small Mormon farming community of about 800 people outside of Yellowstone Park, and I think there was no real expectation for me to like ever do anything. And a few years ago, I was walking with my dad in San Francisco, and I'm like, when I was a kid, like, did you ever look at me and, like, think what I was going to be? And um, he's like, yeah, um, you know, a wife, a mother, Mormon. And I was like, oh, uh, and I was like, none of those things. And I was like, oh, okay, dad. So um, when I went to college, I only applied to one school, and it was Loyola Marymount University. And my parents thought I'd go to this Mormon community college near our house, and I just didn't apply there, and so they nobody like helped me go to college. Like I flew there by myself. The woman who sat next to me on the plane took me um, because she was like, "How are you getting to school?" And I was like, "Oh, my mom says there's a shuttle." And she's like, "Yeah, there's no shuttle." Um, and so like they helped me move in. So I got to college, and I poetry was something I was good at, and so I'm like, "Well, I'll do this." And I did a degree in it. I taught high school for a little while, and then went and got a master's and then I just was like oh yeah I'm gonna just be a poet and then I went on to do my PhD and and I really liked it but at a point I did look around and like the poets were really sad and I'm like oh maybe maybe this is maybe I should not be a poet and, um, and so I started writing fiction and I got an agent really quickly and I started writing children's books and then they're super funny and I had an audience and it was great but I kept writing poetry just thinking the book was gonna come the book was gonna come and I was like a finalist like for the Yale Younger Poet Prize and the Walt Whitman. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to win probably next year. And like, it's just like 20 years later, like it takes a long time. And my friends are like, well, you could have gotten the book published sooner. But like, I really don't know how. Like, it was like, you know. So it was just a lot of hours. It should be noted that you did, in fact, win the Emily Dickinson Prize for first book of poetry. Yes. 
So the, the two decades of work was certainly worth the wait. It was amazing. That was an amazing moment. It is an incredible yeah. book of poetry. Thank you so much. It is. We were talking earlier about um, fiction and, and poetry and, and our own sort of personal tastes and everything. And, it, and I was saying to you, it is it is a breath of fresh air because it it is one of those sort of pieces that cuts just. I think you know we were we were talking about poetry as a, um, a precision weapon. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it really, your work really truly truly is in the twenty years that it took you from sitting down and maybe considering writing a book of poetry to yeah. actually getting a book of poetry published. How did you grow as a poet? I was somebody who was always wanting to try new things. And so it's like when I moved to San Francisco, I became a volunteer gardener on Alcatraz and helped restore the gardens How did there. you end up becoming a volunteer gardener on Alcatraz? So I came from Michigan, and in Michigan, oh, that makes sense. I bought a house. <laughs> and they, um, the people I bought it from had been master gardeners. And I knew I was going to sell the house and not live there forever, probably like in three or four years. And so I'm like, well, I can't let all these plantings die. And so I like just started befriending all these people who were gardeners who would like help me like keep all the plantings alive. And then I moved to San Francisco and I was in an apartment and I realized like I kind of missed touching the earth. And so at first I thought I would just volunteer in Golden Gate Park, but I was looking online for opportunities and they talked about the Alcatraz one and they said, you get a free weekly boat trip and a special hat. <laughs> and I was like, I'm in. And, and so I went and um, they just really liked me, which was good because I did not know anything about gardening at Alcatraz. It was really hard, actually. Is there, a specific, is, is there something specific about gardening on Alcatraz that makes it different than... So, I mean, what, aside from the so it was a historic um, recovery effort, and so when Robert Kennedy closed the prison down, they had all of these gardens, and they just for 20 years went wild. And then a woman gathered all these photographs of these um, military gardens and prisoners' gardens and said, these are the flowers that were here. Let's put it all back. And so a crew of people, volunteers, went and hacked out all these blackberry bushes, got them off the island, and found all the old stories. We found um, a rose that is extinct in the world, um, and we brought it back to um, Wales, where it's from. And so it was like this recovery effort. And so it's doing things like that, I think, helped my observation level. I was a big fan of Louise Gluck and, and her book, um, The Wild Iris. And so putting myself in situations where I could learn new stuff. And then I always, um, I, would, I would go and study with people I really liked. And so, like, Claudia Rankine is somebody I really wanted to study with. And so, I did. And, um, what did you take away? Well, so, this is, like, such a terrible thing to tell people. Um, but she really liked me, and she became my best friend. <laughs> so, like, she was like, you can show me your manuscript, like, we travel together. So, it's really awesome. Um, but she taught me, um, she reads a poem harder than anybody. And she just, she's just really good at understanding what the truth and motivation is behind the poem. And just sitting and reading with people like that and seeing them read all these other poems and gaining that insight, you become a better reader. Right. And so that was something that was really useful to me. And do you think that because by becoming a better reader of poetry, it has made you a more... It's made you more aware of how you express in terms of poetry? It's made me a better reviser. You're better... So I'll generate stuff, and I can go back and look at it with different eyes. Like, I feel like I can almost put Claudia's eyes on it. Right. 
Um, and that is just an amazing thing to be able to do. And so I always tell my students, like, if there's people out there you really want to study with, you should go study with them because they're incredibly. But every now and then there's like a, a loser person you like, and that sucks because then you want to study with them and it's not awesome. Um, you know, they're just like drunk and they don't give you any good feedback. And, you know. Come hang out in my world sometime. Yeah, yeah. But I do. Like, I really, I, I am. Um, I, so this is one thing I tell people, like I'm a writer, I don't really like to, to, you know, I'm a mole person, but I know to be successful, I have to leave the house. And so like going to the Alcatraz thing, going and working with Claudia, for me, like that's leaving the house. And those are very important things to do, I think, in perfecting the art and like getting out of it. In honor of Claudia and of what has been an up and down week, but that has some pretty significant, wonderful underpinnings in it. I'm wondering if you would do us a favor. Could you um, could you read us an official Lady Bible? Oh, yeah. That's surprising. Um, you like that one. Um, not surprising that you like that one, but um, yeah, I love that poem. Yeah. So I, um, when I left Idaho um, to break from Mormonism, I moved to Vermont. And I became an aerobics instructor, and a waitress <laughs> in an Italian restaurant, and I taught college. I was very busy when I was in Vermont, but I really feel like working in that in that um, restaurant um, taught me so much about the world. And so a lot of my poems, well, a few of the poems in the book are about working in that restaurant. And so this is called Unofficial Lady Bible. So many minds dwell on what happens between the sheets. I wish I'd been prepared. Dough rising in bread pans. The fry cook, busy in the walk-in, pants down, hips furiously pumping against the pastry chef, pressed against a mayonnaise barrel. Didn't they have spouses, children, change? The real shock? It wasn't just them. They only began the parade. Adulterers, wrongdoers, creeps. How long could a girl like me work in a place like that and keep her eyes closed? My role models had been delivered from the Bible. I was handed a child's oven, an apron, lipstick. At seven, I could press a perfect pie crust with my thumb. Ta-da! Decades passed before I would open the door to that walk-in and arrive as somebody other than myself. Yes, my busy mind opened it all the time, adding variety. I mean, how could Tina commit so much betrayal? Her body, its own Bible, tight-assed and aging, beholden only to her own climb and joy. It took me years to admire exactly what she'd done. Thank you. You teach. I teach. I teach. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of your poem, Tell. Uh, when I ask this question, what has teaching taught you? So, teaching is hard because one thing you know, teaching a poetry workshop, what happens is it almost always turns into a little bit of a therapy as well, because people are putting things out there and they're exposing like tremendous vulnerabilities about themselves. They're telling you about things they'd never tell anyone, and then suddenly you're workshopping um, these moments and these experiences. And so it, it's taught me to be more human in a way. And when these things arrive, even if I can see pathways to improvement, a lot of times it's just about them getting it out, you know. 
and then we can work on revision on the next piece. And so it taught me a lot of patience with that because I'm somebody who's like, yeah, let's compress it, let's fix it, let's get it rid of the lines that aren't working. But um, in the poem Pal, there was this one um, student who brought in a poem about her, her sister's death. And it was a very, um, you know, it's really hard when, when that happens. And, and the first few times it does happen when they bring something so personal and you're just caught off guard. And, and, and so, yeah. In what way has a self-declared mole person, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. have you learned to be more human through this? Poetry um, specifically, not just the act of teaching, because we all know that you know, so that sort of idea cracks you open, but specifically teaching poetry. No, I've been personally flattered by um, people's willingness to be that vulnerable because I know at those ages I was not comfortable with like that. And so there's a certain bravery that, and I feel like, particularly like in like a generation like underneath me, that there are people who are braver than I am. And to see them and to see the risks they're willing to take emotionally by um, talking about the things they want to talk about. I'm, I'm just really um, humbled and impressed by it because I don't know that I was telling those things or talking about those things. Do you think that's a demand of the times? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm happy about it, you know, but I also know that I grew up in such a conservative, like, closed place that talking about anything felt very bold to me. Black <laughs> <laughs> people are going to drink wine in the poem, you know? <laughs> um, so... actually edit your way into more raw mm -hmm. um, by, by cutting things. Because I think a lot of times what happens is you say something and then you duplicate yourself. And so one of the things that I've gotten very good at is realizing when I'm doing that. And so by pulling some of those things away and putting less down, I feel like you are making it more raw. And I think that that's just a trick you learn over time. Do you feel, do you ever worry about sort of slicing the onion too thin? You know, I had a ruthless leader once. Um, she was a Stegner Fellow at um, Stanford, and she published some of my poems in this journal. And I just, by chance, um, so I seek out people I like. So I was having lunch with Bryce Wolf, and she saw me and, and figured out who I was. And she was just like, we should just exchange manuscripts. And, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. And um, I was, like, so cautious with, like, how I edited her. Or, like, I gave it back to her. And then she gave me mine back, and I felt like she's, like, taking out, like, half of the stuff. And I was like, what's that, you know? But then I really, like, thought about why she was asking me to cut things. And, and that was, like, a really hard lesson for me was to realize, like, just because it works doesn't mean you need it. And so she really, like, really drastically – and I did go back and put things in after she took it out. But just having somebody that, um, that loves you and loves your work go in and drastically edit you – is fascinating and something that I hope everyone can experience because it's a really good lesson. And this is probably shows my ignorance in terms of, of writing. Uh, <laughs> by by asking this, and I and I don't mean to push you on it. Okay. Uh, but it is it is something that just it's a it's a question that it keeps on sort of bouncing around in my head, and it it is that. At a certain point, is the fear that you lose the poetry.
poetry as a poetry by making it too efficient? Um, there's always an underlying musicality hmm. to what I'm writing. And that's just like having an ear that I've worked on. And this is not to say that this yeah. has ever happened to you, and no, I'm not and suggesting so that exists in your I, book at all. It's not, it's I not some passive-aggressive criticism. It would, it would feel like there was a hole if I started to edit the way too much, because there's a music I produce. Got it. And so there's a rhythm so ingrained that's helping me generate what I'm doing that if I went back and tried to pull away too much of it, it would feel like like if you've lost a tooth and then you just can't stop touching it, it would feel like that to me. Right. And so I don't, you know, and there have been times I've taken something out of a poem and it's like, it's bugged me. And it bugged me to the point where it goes back in. And even in a poem here, like for years, I've taken these two lines out and then like I sent it to Bray Wolf and I'm like, I don't want to put these two lines back in. And they're like, yeah. Which poem was it? Um, that was, Assignment, write a poem about an animal. Love that poem. Did you read that poem? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it really wasn't, though. <laughs> Assignment, write a poem about an animal. No, I told John, you may not write a poem about your will. It's not my will, he said. How about my soul? I said no. He wrote about a male impala dominating his female herd. Ugh, I knew I could never trust him. The antelope was not simply an antelope. Its eyes, of course, were the same gray as John's, had the same number of violet flecks. And unlike most impalas, this one wasn't leaping through Africa. Rather, it was living on the outskirts of a park in John's hometown. <laughs> 25 years and still shooting BBs into songbirds him digging through their bodies to get his BBs back, bragging about the women he's conquered and the adventurous ways he took up. He wrote the poems I didn't want to read. In his last, he gathered images from L.A. streets described the La Brea tar pits off of Wilshire Boulevard, the curve of the mastodon's neck, his already sunken hind legs and tail. John wasn't sure how so many got trapped. He wondered what kind of urge led them into this bubbling mess. In conclusion, he used himself to understand. Twice rushing to buy condoms and cigarettes, he ran across a parking lot and stepped into puddles of oil and water, ruining his tidy socks. They were mostly young males, he wrote. I guess it happened. Which, in the end, reminded me of my own soul, bright and impulsive with an important date to keep. She, too, could overlook the dark and liquid road. Which two lines? The, the dark and liquid road things. So I put those back in. Yeah, those weren't there for years. My friend she cut them. <laughs> she was a cutter. <laughs> she really was. She was. But I love her. Sure, yeah, no, of course. But it is, it makes you question, like, what was really important to you about that poem? What, what was, what did you want to do? Yeah. You know? I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated that somebody would cut those two lines. She thought the poem should end on John. And to me, the poem was really about me. Well, know? it starts with you. Well, it starts with John, right? Yeah. But it starts, it starts with I John in reference him. to you. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, but like... Yeah. 
Oh, that's so interesting. Um, okay. Uh, no, so that reminds me of the worst advice anyone ever gave me in poetry, and um, it was a professor, and I was turning these quirky poems, my poems, and she's like, I really think you ought to try to write poems where you're not in them, um, because there's just too many eyes. You're just making the eye too central to these poems. And in the end, I did like do some observational stuff, and it was okay, but then I just kind of realized, like, you know, people give advice that they wish other people would give to them. And like she was kind of boring, and like her poems like had a lot of eyes in them, and like not much was happening, you know. And I'm like, I bet like she just like gave that to me because like maybe someone had given that to her, you know. <laughs> but um, but so you do have to be careful about like you know how much you let land. I'm really glad you put those lines there. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I, I did it last like moment. Like it was, it was just pop yet. Like it was going. I'm really, really glad you did. Um, in that poem, you mentioned something. You, you talked to somebody who grew up in, in the country, mm -hmm. I recognize um, some of that sort of that, that country behavior. Yeah. Um, and you've also mentioned growing up uh, in a small Mormon community. Yeah. Now, you and your husband both, Brian, both have left yeah. the faith. Mm -hmm. We know we can imagine, those of us who, who haven't, or those of us who have know, those of us who haven't can imagine what it costs to do something like that. What do you gain? Um, happiness. So I have told Brian <laughs> that we should get together and write a collection of essays that are kind of like a how-to guide on how to like leave a faith system and then like be happy on the other side. Because once I was sort of tricked into going to this party that was like former Mormons, and, like, they were so bitter, like, you know, and just drinking and talking about Mormonism. And it felt a lot like hanging out with Mormons, except for the drinking part. And I just remember, like, you've got to get on the other side of it. And, like, there's a tremendous freedom. And, like, because you've been constrained for so long, you know what the freedom feels like. You know, like, you know, like, if you're not somewhere for three hours every Sunday to suddenly, like, have your Sunday, like, that's a gift, you know? Like, that's a gain. There's no – and there was a part of me I was afraid when I was Mormons that, like, I'm going to miss it. I'm going to miss it, I'm going to go back, and then it's going to be like, you know, oh, we need to come back. And like I left, and I just remember like it just got better and better, and I'm just happy and like happier. And then I'm like, oh my god, like what if I get really old and decide I want it, like I get a head injury, and then like finally like I just kind of realized like I'm never, I'm never going to go back, like, you know, like it just wasn't a good fit for me. So. What has it given you as an artist? Because there are artists who, who thrive in those conditions. Yeah, you know, it's, um... It's given me a tension. Like, there's always going to be a natural tension between where I came from and, and who I am now. Like, that's, there's always going to be that. Um, and it also gave me something to push back on to, like, find my own identity, you know? Because it's like, I can remember when I got to Vermont, like, I thought it was just a coincidence. Like, I'm, you know, I'm going to go get my palm read. I'm going to get an astrologer. Like, Terry Tempest Williams is like, you should get an astrologer. I'm like, yeah, I should. And, um, and I realized, like, of course I'm craving these things because I just removed, like, my entire, like, like life view. Like, you know, everything. I just ripped out of my life. I have no path anymore. And so um, it, it, that's, like, that gap there of trying to, like, build something really quickly, like, that was, like, that was rough. But, you know, it worked. Um, Neil LeBute is somebody that we discussed. Mm -hmm. He's a, a collaborator of mine and a friend of mine, and, and, and he has mentioned leaving the church. It sets has given him, provided him almost an infant identity in a different way as being contra. Uh -huh. 
and you know certainly has set his work up yeah. uh, in in that regard. He was happy to sort of grab that mantle and run with it. Do you feel like that pushback, that tension? You know, I hadn't, but suddenly it's like I'm getting like emails like from church stuff, and it's like we want to nominate you for like Mormon something something. We understand you're no longer identifying as Mormon, and I'm like. Yeah, how did you even get this email? Like, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> there's that element, you know. I, I don't I don't know what's gonna happen. Like the book is so new and for so long I did children's books and I never touched Mormonism in them because right. I didn't want that to overtake any of the stuff I was doing or be a distraction. Um, but now that the book's out, I think that's gonna be different. So and we'll I'll just have to wait and see. Yeah. Yeah. Um the next moderator I have in Portland is a, is currently a Mormon, and so like I have no idea what's gonna happen. Oh my God! I really yeah. want to see that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, they put me on a, on a panel about belief, which I, I don't know why they did that because I just don't. What do you believe in? I don't. I'm gonna have to like think about that before the panel. I think you're probably gonna have yeah. to. Yeah. If you're sitting on a panel about belief and you're not sure. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's the whole point. I don't know. I, I just when I when when cornered like that, I tend to just talk about animals. You in the great tradition of of Jim Harrison write and use animals in an extraordinary way in your work. And it's nature appears you almost and, and, and forgive me if I'm speaking out of turn, but from my perspective it's it feels what it feels like is that you almost at times perceive humanity as playing by rules in a world in which nothing else has agreed to play by those same rules. And there is a, you almost have a sort of compassion for these bumbling two-legged creatures that are sort of staggering through the world playing by a different set of rules than everything else. And this fascination that you have with animals in your work, yeah. where does it come from? I mean, other than obviously growing up in the Country, you know, we know yeah. how important they are in terms of your day-to-day -day life and what an oversized role they take in sometimes, but in terms of your work. Yeah, no, so I studied with Mary Rupel early on, and she she's a poet, she's great, and, and she's like, you write about animals a lot. And I'm like, everybody writes about animals. She's like, no, you write about animals a lot. <laughs> and that was like my first window into the fact that I was more curious about them maybe than other people. Um, and so I thought about it a lot, and there was this moment when I was a child, and my, I had like a rough grandpa, and he had a farm, and he made an arrangement with a beekeeper where he could keep his bee boxes in his, in his cow pastures for free hunting. And then my um, grandpa would be like, we're going to move the cows in the fields, you know, can, can Chrissy come help? And my dad would always be like, oh yeah, she'd love to. And so I would like go, I'd be like seven, and I'd be herding these cows like in between these bee boxes, you know? And I was just terrified. I was afraid of cows. I was afraid of the bees. And they would usually have me stand to block gates so that the cows would go through. And um, they would, the cows would just like run towards me. And I would always let them through because, like, you know, they didn't. They weren't afraid of me. And so after that would happen, like every time, I, I'd be like, maybe I should hold a stick, you know? And they're like, you can't hold a stick. Like you'll hurt the cows. And, um, but I can just remember watching the cows and having them size me up and just realizing, like, they just had a completely different set of issues than I did, you know? <laughs> and that caught my 
attention to my interests. Like they just, they had a whole different set of needs, a whole different set of wants. They were gonna, you know, they did not care that I was gonna get in trouble for letting them through the gate. They were, they were gonna do what they were gonna do. And that with the bees, I just, you know, it really like, if I had, and I, plus I grew up outside of Yellowstone Park where we constantly were getting reports about the bear attacks and maulings and, and all the tourists getting gored by buffalo. And if you don't know that when you're a child, you just think that's how the world, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, of course. Of course, another biker got taken by a mountain lion. What happened? Sure. Um, and then you get older, you realize, oh, that's not everybody's news cycle. You know, you, you don't realize. But I know so much about bear safety just because I grew up like believing I, I was going to meet my grizzly. You know. Right. Yeah. The most of people don't sort of yeah. grow up watching ravens kick over a carcass on the side of the road with great regularity. Um, would you read local hazard? Um, so I'm really happy that my book is a bear on a cover because like bears are like really big to me. And I make a joke about like being in my grizzly, but um, talk to me sometime outside because I did in Alaska. I came across a grizzly all by myself. Um, We're going to talk about that next. So um, <laughs> local hazards. Outside Yellowstone, I see them, these bears lumbering like fathers through backyards, ravenous for whatever we feel inside our trash. Do not feed the bears, the signs say. Even as big, they are animals, my mother warns, holding her hands out the distance of a loaf of bread. Beneath that fluff, they are killing machines, adds my father, raising his arms, curving his fingers to produce mock paws. Season after season, they carry on, moist snouts, sharp claws, hind flanks glistening under moon and sun. I am too young to deal with them, led by hunger to my doorstep, they wildly arise almost every day, and I close my eyes, starving in my own way. Breadcrumbs in my pockets, trout in the refrigerator, the deep smell of myself on my fingertips. Unwritten hazards do not come close. Despite your puffed cheeks, playful gallop, the lovable way you corral your young, I must keep my distance. No, I cannot. Cannot give you what you want. Thank you. This is the most clapping I've had in decades. Get <laughs> yeah. used to it. So, go on. You were mentioning your grizzly. Okay, so I'll, I'll tell this story. So, I went to Alaska because I was researching a teen novel there. And um, before I left, I was in San Francisco, and so this kind of sets the stage. I, I was like, I do not have enough bug spray for this trip. So I went to Walgreens, <laughs> and as I was going to Walgreens, I saw this van getting a ticket, and I'm like, oh, poor guy, like, I hate tickets, you know. Go in, and so I'm like, and it was a lot of tickets on the guy's van. And as I get my bug spray, and I come out, and suddenly it's like this crime scene tape everywhere. Like, I'm in the crime scene tape, you know? And so I just say really loud, like, what's going on? And um, the guy's like, yeah, tow truck came to take the van, and uh, there was a body in there. And I'm like, oh, my God. And I look over, and I'm like, I see a body. And like, I like take my bug spray, run home. I have a flight like in three hours. I get on the plane. I'm flying. And halfway there, the pilot comes on, and he's like, do we have a doctor on board? We are experiencing a medical emergency at the back of the plane. And I'm like, two rows from the back. And so like, I look, and this woman is in complete distress. Like, it was so traumatic. They get her up. They make her walk the entire rest of the flight. Like, even in the first class and back, it was like, you know, it's bad. We land. And so, like, my anxiety meter is just high, you know. And um, 
my friend is staying at his house, and he's like, you should just go for a walk tomorrow to work, but we're right next to this, this forest, it's great, there's all these trails, um, there's a map, I'll leave you downstairs, I get up, I go downstairs, there's a giant bell, I put it on, I take the map, I go, I start walking, I hear this munching sound, I'm like, what's that? And it's like, I realize it's like a moose, and, and so like I call my friend who's a park ranger in Maine, and I'm like, there's a moose on my path, and I'm clapping my hands trying to get it going, it won't move. He's like, yeah, the only time I've ever seen a moose charge is when a man clapped at it. <laughs> so, was, was like, just let the moose go. You want different things. And so I waited. The moose left. I started a hike. I had my map. I was trying to read it against this post. And this couple comes by with their dog. And I'm like, can you recommend a hike in this area? And he's like, can I recommend one? It's a loop hike. It's scenic. It's gorgeous. You'll love it. I'm like, great. He's like, just go that way. You're going to cross a, a little uh, river. Uh, make sure that you don't get any uh, uh, any water on you. There's a lot of salmon. You don't want any scent on you. Cross that. There's going to be a military base. Trespass into the military base. <laughs> You'll go not very far. Off to the left, there'll be a path. Take it. Gorgeous. Scenic loop. Right back. You're gorgeous. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do that. So I get to the little river. I cross it. I don't get wet. I get to the military base. I'm like, yeah, I'll trespass. I'm trespassing. Another woman with her dog is coming by, and I'm like, excuse me, I'm looking for it. She's like, I'm sorry, I can't help you. I have never left the main trail, which I should have taken as a sign, like, I shouldn't be leaving the main trail. Did not. Found the path, took it, I'm walking, it's gorgeous, the grass is getting taller and taller, and I'm like, oh my god, this is, like, pretty, you know? And then I'm, like, wondering when it's going to loop back, and it's not looping back, and then there's another path, I'm like, do I take that? And I'm like, sure, I go to the next one. As I'm standing there deciding what to do, I hear this blood curdling scream that makes all the hair stand up on me and I hear a whirring sound and I look and there's a bicycle just like tearing down the path coming in towards me. So I step into the grass and she's screaming, you need to go faster. <laughs> and she's gone. And I'm like, well, what? Was she talking to me? Like, I wasn't going. And, and then like I hear another whirring sound and I look and there's this younger, like chubbier, like version of her coming along and like she's got snot coming out of her face and she's just like she's crying, she's just uncontrolled crying. And she's screaming, I'm going as fast as I can. And she's gone. And I'm like, oh, they're probably getting chased by something. Um, I don't know what to do. And so then I'm like, I know what to do. I'm going to back up to that first path and I'm going to walk just enough to see what it is so that I'm not terrified and then I'll go back and I'll go back. So then I go to the first path and I start walking. As I'm walking, I see something that looks like an elk to me. And it's like lumbering and then it like stands up and it puffs its little mouth. And I'm like, oh my God, it's a grizzly bear. And I'm like, I cover my bell and I back up as slowly as I can and I get back to the path, and then I just basically run home. And then my friend comes home, and I'm like, yeah, like, I saw a bear. And he's like, where did you see a bear? And I'm like, well, across this river, across the military banks, I went left. And he's like, you went left? Why would you go left into there? And it turns out, like, there were 54 tagged um, grizzly bears in the park he sent me to walk in, and an unknown amount of black bears. They don't even tag them. And I'm like, why would you even send me in there, like, without bear spray? And he's like, well, we were out of bear spray. And I'm like, oh. Put that next to the note with the bell, like. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. It's my bear story, but you know. People point out I did not follow probably like the best like bear safety procedure on my trip to Alaska, and I agree. That's it's not even a thing that I'm sort of taken with. <laughs> I mean, sure. 
I suppose that's probably true too. But but Kristen, you you left the Mormon Church for a pretty extraordinary life of adventure. I mean, my husband has accused me of living a life of interconnected short stories, and I kind of have to agree with him. Like, so I'll tell you guys one more quick anecdote. So my son is in kindergarten, and they invited me to go and like speak and be the author of this school. And I'm like, yeah, I'll go. I'll go and do a presentation in my son's kindergarten. Great. So I go, and I'm like 10 minutes into this author presentation, and like the intercom monitor, the, mo- the intercom goes off, and they're like, we are in a hard lockdown. Teachers, assume hard lockdown procedures. <laughs> and like the kids like just cramper under the desk and pull the chairs in around them, and she starts closing the blinds, and I realize I am in an active shooter drill in the kindergarten classroom. And it's like, I like, I didn't know what to do, and like, I kind of get under the tables with them, but they were like super chatty, and they like kept asking me author questions, <laughs> the teacher had to like crawl over and shush us, and, and then it's like you're just dark in there, and they don't, they didn't, the kindergartners didn't understand what was happening, but like I did, and I'm so traumatized, and the sheriff department's being sent around to like pull on the doors, like, because they're the ones that are doing the drill, so you just hear people walking the halls, pulling to make sure the doors are locked, and it was just awful, and then like when it was done, I had to finish my author presentation, <laughs> and it's like I come home, and I am just like traumatized, and my husband's all chipper, and he's like, how was it? How did it go? And I'm like, worst experience of my life! <laughs> and um, he looked, I tell him what happened, he's like, Kristen, you know, out of everyone I know, for anyone to be in an uh, active shooter drill in a kindergarten classroom, I would guess it would be you, actually. I would guess you. So, yeah, so there's that. Thank you so much. Um, I'm wondering as we wrap up if you would do us a favor and read two poems for us just to sort of close out. Okay. Um, and then we'll we'll uh, turn it over to the audience to ask just a couple of quick questions of you if they want. But would you read for us Vermont uh, Creation? Okay. Yeah. Vermont Collision. If you want to see a boy lose his dream, Kill his mother with a train? It happened. I was in Vermont serving a baked white fish. Her son was bussing a table. She was on her way to buy an ice cream cone. A whistle blew. She got off the tracks, but the side of the train still gripped her soft body, took it hundreds of feet until she fell into a meadow. There were so many warnings. That night he dropped half the things I asked him to hold. There was no moon. It was too dark. We were too happy. We might have been laughing as she was being kissed. Would you read that passage? Haphazard. Um, and so I should say, like, in a braggy way, because I should say it. Should. Um, it just appeared in the New Yorker, like, two days ago, so I'm super excited about it. Um, and it, it's surprising when that happens, like, how many people, like, email you to talk about that. And, um, yeah. Even, like, a random man from um, Alabama who now wants to do my taxes for some reason. <laughs> Haphazard. They can put a girl on the moon right now, I suppose. The details wouldn't be too hard to crack. Dangers here, perils there. It'll go how it goes. Earth faces venoms, disease, foes, and woes. Free of that jeopardy, she won't rob it back. If you put the right girl on the moon, I suppose. Some might worry alone, she'll face lunar lows. Does a girl who lacks parties turn blue and pitch black? Dangers here, perils there. 
We'll go how it goes. Like Buzz, Neil, and other above-average Joes, she'll travel in space boots and wield a screwdriver. If we put our best girl on the moon, I suppose, we'll blast her above every bloom of dog rose, let her farewell our bright spots along with our wrath, danger, sphere, perils there. Who will own copper's nose? Prepared for the darkness and cut off from schmoes, full girl haphazard. On a zodiac track, we'll put that girl right on the moon, I suppose, endangered, imperiled, and watch how it goes. Thank you. I can't believe this is your first time doing this. Oh. You're a natural. Oh, you're very kind. Um, we're going to open it up for a couple of quick questions if anybody has any. I'm going to sound so cocky right now. So everybody has their down days, like where you feel like, wow, I've just written garbage my whole life. I can't believe it. But um, for the most part, like, I feel like I get, I like writing poems. And um, I always felt like in the workshops, like I was writing good poems. I, I always felt like, oh, this is a keeper. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, and so I did feel that way. And But I also, like, I really think hard about what I want to write about. Like, I feel like some people will be walking and, and be like, that was a dog. I have a poem today. I'm going to write about that dog. Like, and that was never me. Like, I was, like, super aggressive in graduate school, like, trying to, like, write poems that I thought would, like, endure. I saved all my drafts. I don't know why. My husband has told me that it's fine, that you have all these bins of them. So, um, there is, like, there is, like, I feel, and maybe it's because I was leaving religion and it was a thing I had. Like, you know, that I just, I, because in a way I probably thought at the time it was part of it was for my art. Like, I'm leaving it for my art. So, like, it had to matter to me. Like, I had to believe I was good at it, or else, like, what did I have, you know? My son doesn't know the word Mormon. He calls them the Normans. Like, every now and then, just have to like, does your family want you to be a Norman again? And I'm like, yeah, they do. <laughs> Anyone else have anything else to ask? Krista, are you? Amazing anecdotes that I know that you have, and you share this with the night. Did you ever share so later on the biographical with the 
So I don't think of myself as, like, somebody who, who read a memoir, like, naturally, like, I just, because I, like, I don't know, like, I, yeah, but um, recently I was at a party, and it was, like, Yale people, um, I was jobbing with Claudia, and she kicked me, she's like, let's go to Maine and do a retreat, and then I got to um, New Haven, and she's like, let's just stay here and write, and I'm like, what? <laughs> and I was at this party, and this man um, wanted to talk to me. And he just like I assumed like I, he assumed like I just kind of was nobody, you know, like all these people like the Yale professors would recognize. And so he just started talking to me about this memoir he was working on, which like set me into like a panic. And so I found my and like he said to me, and I told him an anecdote, and he's like, you know, all about you could write a memoir. And like I was so like offended by that. And, like there was like a part of me that's like, yeah, you watch. <laughs> I probably will. Um, so I do think that like I want to write the collection of, of, of um, short stories about leaving Mormonism with Brian. Like I think that'd be super fun, and how much of the anecdotes would make it in. But I'm also like super nervous about offending people. And like I just remember um, there was this nonfiction writer at BYU who like came to talk to us, and she's like. Um, and she actually was a fiction writer, and she wanted to write nonfiction. She's like, but I can never write nonfiction because I can never say the words. My sister is fat, and she is fat, and if she ever read that, it would hurt too many people. And so, like, there's this fear I have, like, oh, yeah, can I, my sister's not fat, but, like, could I say my sister is fat? Like, you know, and I don't know. Like, I don't, I wouldn't want to hurt anybody. And so I totally understand why some people wait until, like, their parents are dead before they do stuff like that, because, like, it just, like, takes away some of that stress of them reading it. So, so yeah, so don't, um, Adria is like, she's great. And I met her at screenplay camp, and she tricked me too, and she said, she's like, let's write a, like, a funny, like, porn thing, and I'm like, what? Yeah, sure. It'll be like weeds, but with porn, but then, like, when push came to shove, and I told her, like, give me your porn menu, she's like, yeah, let's not do that. So, we wrote something else. <laughs> Any other questions? Thank you guys very, very much for coming this evening. Kristen, thank you so much for your time. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.